Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week at the Institute, we're marking 20 years since the start, almost to the day, of the invasion of Iraq led by the US. Launched amid fears that Saddam Hussein was acquiring weapons of mass destruction, the war changed the Middle East. It inflicted huge damage on Iraq. There were many civilian casualties. The effects persist today. We'll be discussing the war with those who were in power here in London when the decision was made to commit UK forces to that invasion, and with those in Iraq who lived with the consequences. But lots of us today discussing this one topic in two parts. Joining me down the line is Claire Short, the former Secretary of State for International Development, who served in Tony Blair's cabinet and resigned after the invasion began, becoming one of the best-known critics of Prime Minister Blair's approach to the war. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. Thank you. Joining us as well is Dr. Patricia Lewis, the director of our International Security Programme. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Bronwyn. Joining us as well is Dr. Lena Katib, the director of our Middle East and North Africa Programme. Welcome back to the show, Lena. Thank you so much. Speaking from Iraq is one of my Chatham House colleagues who witnessed firsthand the impact of the invasion, Dr. Renard Mansour. He's a senior research fellow with the Middle East and North Africa Programme and the project director of our Iraq Initiative. Welcome, Renard. Thank you. And we have as well here in the studio with me, Haida Al-Shakari, a research associate with the MENAP program. Welcome, Haida. Thank you, Robert. Let's start first with that decision to go to war 20 years ago. Claire, I wonder if I can start with you and if you could take us back to the months leading up to the war and the nature of the discussion in the cabinet at the time. What was that like? The atmosphere was very fraught and there was a sort of Tony Blair would hype it up and then calm it down, constantly saying we would go through the UN, there had to be a second resolution, wanted to get the weapons inspectors back in, war wasn't inevitable, and then he'd make a hardline speech. And at the beginning, members of the cabinet spoke about their doubts, but as it went on, the people hardly spoke, and Blair was in charge, and everyone was very fraught. Um... And the atmosphere, indeed, in the parliamentary party, and everyone remembers that massive demonstration in London on the 15th of February, the country was tense. And it's a long time ago, but it's important to remember that it was, in a sense, the aftermath of 9-11. Countries were very tense, if you can use that, about a a country. It was just over a year after after that, after the, um, the Afghan military action. What effect did that have, do you think, on the thinking? Well, one of the effects was that the Americans lied about that Saddam Hussein had a role in the attack on the Twin Towers, which wasn't true. So they were angry and bruised and full of hubris and had previously wanted to take out Saddam Hussein anyway. I mean, that argument didn't flow in Britain because our intelligence agencies were absolutely clear there was no role at all for Saddam Hussein in 9-11 I think it affected Tony Blair's determination to support America almost come what may and his difficulty in doing that because of the feelings of the Labour Party were different to American sort of gung-ho hubris um, and therefore he had to promise the UN route and all of that and really didn't tell the whole truth of where he'd got himself committed to go anyway right through the argument. So lots of us were taking seriously the question of could we get a second UN resolution, which they never did, Um, and, you know, whether WMD was there, and if not, then you didn't have to rush to war, but they rushed anyway. So that 
allegation that there were lies, which is very widespread in Britain, is because Blair was giving a rather different line than the American line. I'm very much pressing the UN button. And then when he couldn't secure that, he got himself into some difficulties. Thank you for that, that flavour of it and your perspective on this. Obviously, there have been, there's been the Chilcot inquiry uh, in, the, in the UK. Uh, Tony Blair himself has said much on this over these many years since then. And we can't revisit all of that. But just remind us, if you could briefly, what drove your resignation in May 2003? Well, I was I booked a slot to resign. <laughs> That's when a the wonderful was made. We were going. <laughs> I remember that in the future. Sorry. Well, you <laughs> Okay, you have to you have to go to the speaker and yes, yes. say that's what you're doing. And he told me that that Robin had also booked a slot. Um, and you know, resignation speaks takes precedence over over other business. And then, so that would have been I would have gone just before the invasion. And then Blair had me in full charm. You know, he has enormous charm, and said, "What would stop you?" And I said, "I don't think you can stop the invasion now." And I was very focused on the fact that. A second and third UN resolution, so to speak, was need- needed. Otherwise, it was an illegal occupation. And I thought there might be difficulty getting that, but also that, that provided an opportunity, maybe, to get a UN lead on the reconstruction rather than a military occupation. All right. So that was my focus. It wasn't okay. a widespread debate. Blair said, fine, I can get Bush to agree to that, because, of course, you had people like Rumsfeld saying, we don't do nation-building and I believed if there was a UN lead and international forces, it would have prevented lots of the mess that came. And Blair said he could do it. And if you remember, Bush came to Northern Ireland and he said UN about six times, but that was the whole of it. Hmm. And then it became hmm. clear that no such thing was happening. And the UN resolution legitimizing or recognizing the occupation went through with no trouble. So there was nothing that I could achieve. Yeah. And I went. Yeah. So thank, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, recollection. Patricia, I want to bring you in at this point. You've been uh, looking at security questions for a long time and indeed we're looking, I've been looking for a long time at this question through the 90s, the UN, the IAEA, its its nuclear watchdog were running um, their checks, their processes trying um, to look at Saddam Hussein's programs. What was the quality of the information um, that they had? Hmm. So, um, after 1991, when there was a ceasefire agreement with Iraq after the invasion of Kuwait and then the war against the, the first Gulf War, if you like, uh, there was a, a, a new body set up called UNSCOM, the UN Special Commission in Iraq. Um, and that was originally headed by Rolf Achaeus, the Swede. Um, and they were extraordinarily successful. Along with the IAEA, they were able to find... Um, chemical weapons, which they knew about. They were able to find that there was a nuclear program and dismantled it. And they also discovered unexpectedly a very big bioweapons program, which they never discovered the documentation for, but they carried out an enormous number of inspections. They fully understood all of the programs. 
And it turned out they were more successful than they realised and they actually dismantled everything without perhaps even knowing how much they had achieved. And this is back, this is now more than 30 years ago. This was one of my very first jobs. I remember sitting uh, for the Financial Times, sitting in a hotel in Kuwait, watching the inspectors drag these bits of Saddam Hussein's various attempts, many various attempts, um, at weapons of mass destruction, including the uranium enrichment, drag these out of the desert. Uh, so back in 91, a very long time ago, there, uh, there was a lot of evidence. You roll it on to... Uh, 2003. What, what, what about then? Yeah, so I was in the UN at the time. I was heading up the UN Institute for Disarmament Research and obviously working a lot with then Hans Blix, who'd taken over the UN effort. He had been the Director General of the IAEA and his former deputy had then become the Director General, Mohammed El-Baradai. And Hans was heading up the um, inspection effort on missiles, chemical, biological, and Mohammed was heading up the inspection effort on nuclear. And by that time, the UN had had four years without inspections. And Hans had used that time to try to understand everything. And they had a big chart and they had a big, uh, you know, Excel spreadsheet and they knew exactly where the missing information needed to be, where they needed to focus. And they went there. And they didn't find any chemical, well, they found chemical weapons, but exactly where they expected them. They knew there was no nuclear. And um, they couldn't find the bio. And they went everywhere where the U.S. told them, the U.K. told them, and it wasn't there. But they did find longer-range missiles than Iraq should have had. And that, for me, proved just how good these inspectors were. Do you mean in the sense uh, in the sense that they found them then, or in what I think you were suggesting earlier, that the success of the inspection regime had driven yes. these weapons out of Iraq? Yes, they yes. had persuaded Saddam Hussein to give this stuff up and not... Exactly. Not repeated. Uh, and, and indeed, it turns out that the bioweapons were almost undoubtedly uh, got rid of before the very first bioweapons inspection in August 1991, so probably in April 1991. Interesting. And you were chairing an event here at Chatham House with Mohammed El-Baradeh, uh, you've just referred to, and he was Director General of the IAEA um, and at the point we're discussing. And he called it uh, the 2003 invasion a war of choice. Here's a clip on what he had to say. But this was clearly a predetermined war based as now, as we see, very much on lies and deceptions regarding WMDs. Again, it was striking to me later as I read that Paul Wolfowitz said that the WMD is what they could agree on you know, as a common denominator. There were both a group of people coming with all their different biases, but at least what they agreed on is to say weapon of mass destruction threat. What do you think of that phrase of his, a war of choice? I think it's a very interesting phrase, and I think from his perspective it must have felt like that. And um, for many of us, even though we weren't, I mean, Hans Blix, uh, many of us thought that there were still bioweapons there, but we didn't think it was an imminent threat. And um, everything we knew about Saddam Hussein was that he was more concerned about, and this turned out to be true, um, a revenge attack from the Gulf states for his invasion of Kuwait. So um, one of the things that happened was that um, the Iraqi regime kept on lying to the UN not letting them into places, um, not telling them the full facts. And this was interpreted wrongly, it turned out, that they were hiding weapons. 
But in fact, it was because they were fearful that their neighbours would find out or were become more certain that they didn't have them and therefore not be deterred. Lena, I'd love to bring you in at this point. Perhaps you can take us back to the regional response at the time to this decision to go to war. I mean, many in the region did not really like Saddam Hussein, but no one wanted to face the same fate as Saddam Hussein either. So there was wide criticism of this uh, war in the region, even by those who were not politically aligned with Saddam Hussein. Um, People felt that uh, this is an opportunity to... um, show that the U.S. is imperialist and that they were taking an anti-imperialist stance. And it really was very embarrassing for America's allies in the region, really. And what about Iran? Uh, Not one of America's allies in a country uh, not keen on seeing Saddam Hussein uh, prosper or indeed in power. Yeah, absolutely. For Iran, this was a golden gift. It had three huge advantages. First was taking out Iran's huge opponent, Saddam Hussein, who had waged war, you know, between Iran and Iraq for years. So seeing him weakened was uh, very welcomed by Iran. At the same time, it was an opportunity for Iran's sympathizers inside Iraq to uh, rise politically, mainly people in the Shia community. So Iran found in this an advantage for increasing its uh, regional influence. But at the same time, it also gave Iran an opportunity to fly that anti-American, anti-imperialist flag. So this was really a gift that Iran welcomed, um, even though it was also supporting some of the armed groups that were conducting military operations against uh, the occupying forces of the U.S., Um, inside Iraq. And for me, 2003 is a milestone in Iran's regional influence um, in the Middle East, which just continued to grow since. And it's very difficult now to think how this influence, especially in Iraq, could actually be reversed. Thank you for that. And Renan, perhaps you can take us into 20 years ago, the feeling within Iraq at the time. Obviously, many different groups there, um, but the, the, the feeling as this invasion uh, was authorised and took place. A lot of Iraqis um, suffered under Saddam. Uh, you know, this wasn't, this was for decades they had experienced war, beginning with his decision to go to war with Iran and then to invade Kuwait and then the sanctions. So life was awful. Um, and so a lot of Iraqis on the eve of the invasion um, wondered, we want to remove Saddam, do we trust that the US, uh, the UK and their allies could come in and give us democracy? Democracy sounds great. How do we get there? So there was a willingness and, and, and a, a, a demand to have a better life, but none of them would have expected what would happen as a consequence of decisions made uh, leading up to and then during the occupation and afterward. And can you just, we're going to come on in a moment to Iraq sort of since then and what it's like now, but can you just take us into a bit um, those decisions uh, made uh, during the conduct of the invasion and how how people's views within Iraq began to change? 
we look at 2003 as, as obviously the beginning of this war, but for almost a decade, actually for more than a decade, the U.S. had been working on this file with a Iraqi National Congress, a group of Iraqi exile parties, um, some of them Kurdish and some of them Shia, even connected to Iran. So they come back into Baghdad and they need to be empowered somehow. So there are specific decisions made. And, you know, we talk about a rush to war. There then becomes a rush to prove the concept as successful. You're not finding weapons of mass destruction. The links to Al-Qaeda are proving tenuous. We need a democracy. How do we get there? That rush to prove democracy, remove all of the military, the demilitarization, disbanding of the military, the removal of over 40,000 civil servants turned the exercise from what was known as regime change to the destruction of the state. You have looting, you have the, the demise of the rule of law, and Iraqis start to see violence. Different militias begin emerging. You have sectarianism now being part of the political system and it's militarized. Life becomes very dangerous as a consequence to this destruction. I was in Iraq soon after the invasion and I remember how palpably the mood began to change. Haida, you were in Iraq at the time of the invasion. What did you make of the mood at the time Renard's uh, d describing it uh, then and, and then as it started to change? Uh, thank you, Bronwyn. And uh, as Renat was mentioning, um, this was another catastrophe in Iraq, in Iraqis' lives, where uh, you know they've been going through sanctions, they've been going through uh, various uh, oppressions under Saddam. There were various propaganda, uh, and there were also bombings. So I remember very well in the 90s, we were bombarded by the U.S. before. So we were, uh, in a, in a way, uh, experts, and you know how to put tape on the window so that they won't uh, be. Uh, shot it on us or how to you know protect ourselves from uh, bombings and different things uh, so during the invasion in 2003 our main mission our main thoughts was how to survive how to stay alive uh, how to not be collateral damage to you know the various bombings and shootings that were happening around us Wh so, where were you in iraq in baghdad in baghdad yeah so some people uh, a lot of my family and friends they went to uh, uh, you know other cities where they had farms or they had you know big pieces of land away from the infrastructure that you know the US might have uh, uh, might might target and um, while well, we stayed in Baghdad because we didn't have another place to go and um, uh, our main mission was to survive uh, and then after that during the occupation you know things have developed further and further where you know many of the Iraqis were pushed away from the decision making and elites from abroad were brought into power of uh, into position of power where you know backed by the US by backed by the UK they started you know building Iraq in, in a different way than maybe we have imagined and uh, I remember very well you know the decision to vote for the Constitution at the time and to go for the referendum to to go and uh, just put your yes or no and uh, everyone was you know going to, to say yes even though, you know, we didn't really read the Constitution, we didn't really have a full idea of what the Constitution is going to be like and what the impact of it will be. Thank you very much for that. Let's use that as a pivot to talk about the second flank of this, which is Iraq now, and indeed the lessons we might take from all this. It's a very long 20 years since then, and we can't possibly summarise all that. But I, Rondel, Renard, if you could kick us off on this, just picking up on the points you were making, to take us into where Iraq is now, Politically, you, you ran a brilliant conference for us a few months ago on exactly that, the state of Iraq now and where it might go. Thank you. And we've commissioned a series of 
essays uh, from people who worked in Iraq in different capacities over the last 20 years, because we want to know, we, we're looking for the insider perspective of what went wrong. At Chatham House, we have, uh, we've, we've, we commissioned uh, a series of essays from practitioners, people who worked in Iraq for the last uh, 20 years to try and understand what went wrong and what could have been done differently. Um, and we have some findings that have come out. Uh, the first finding was, it, obviously, it was rushed because there was this short term and we need success. How does democracy, democratic success, what does democratic success look like? It's elections and it's constitutions. But as Haider was saying, there weren't any town halls. There weren't people who were consulted. There was an elite that was developed that came primarily from outside, right? And keep this in mind as a point. Iraq last year elected a new prime minister at the end of 2022. This is the first prime minister to be born and raised in Iraq since 2003. So that's the kind of, you know, that's the exercise we're talking about. You have this, these exiles who had spent decades away coming back to a city which they did not know, having to represent a people who they did not know. And they rushed through the constitution to, to empower them. They rushed through elections that were based on ethnic and sectarian lines that empowered them through identity politics. The people had no say in the new Iraq. And I think we're still 20 years on living with, you know, Iraqis are living with the consequences of not having a say in their government. Did those external people also want to get riches? Was that part of the root of the terrible corruption? They certainly needed corruption because they were powerless. They were coming to a new country. So they developed a specific political system where they could extract rents from Iraq's oil wealth. Um, and, you know, if you think about Iraq's budget each year, it, it goes up to $100 billion. And yet the country has no electricity no basic services, no health care. Iraq is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, but has one of the lowest life expectancies in the world. To me, that discrepancy says a lot about how the system and, and who it's actually meant to, to, to benefit or to support. Haida, you grew up in post-Saddam Iraq, an astonishing figure about the prime minister that um, Renata has just reminded us of. You saw, you saw the protest movements um, in 2011, 2019. What does the future look like to you? Well, those protests were a sign of disillusionment amongst the people. And um, uh, this disillusionment stays, is, is still there. And um, nothing changed. The system is still the same. The way that Iraq is governed is still the same. Uh, and this, this disillusionment within the people are, are, are still there. So people will, um, uh, you know, protest again. People will, you know, rise again. And uh, people are not going to the ballot boxes because those have proof to uh, to not make any consequences, to make any any results. Uh, and as a result, uh, we don't see much hope in, in the future, uh, aside from, you know, investing in, in the people and in the, in the, in the young people who, who, you know, make around 60 or 65 percent of Iraq's population, which is under the age of 25 right now. Lena, does the uh, the constitution of Iraq work at all? We've had all these painful years of seeing minorities, uh, including the the, the um, uh, Sunni uh, minority that used to be around uh, Saddam Hussein, um, on the wrong side of, um, of of what majority might want to do. Does it work in any sense? Well, anyone anyone who uh, looks at the uh, political system in Lebanon. Um, would have 
told everybody that the model that was parachuted on Iraq that mimicked the Lebanese model was only going to lead to disaster in the short term, medium term, and long term. Um, when you have a system in which uh, sectarian identity overrides national identity and a system that entrenches corruption, the powers that be who are in charge are just going to use it to enrich themselves and uh, empower their own immediate communities in a clientelistic way rather than work for the national interest. And Claire, I would just want to bring you in on this because you these long years as International Development Secretary, looking at how to help countries with their governments, uh, looking indeed how to help countries with their democracies, uh, where they were democracies. What, do you, what lessons do you take from what was attempted with the Constitution of Iraq? Well, the sectarian point, that was done in Bosnia, if you remember, the carve up, and, give, and, and it's still unsettled and troubled. So there's yet another one. The other case I think about is the Democratic Republic of Congo, this massive country with enormous natural wealth, but it rushed immediately to elections when there wasn't a stable country, nothing was ready, um, and it's still in trouble. So I'm afraid the one example that I was very involved in that went really well was Sierra Leone, where we had a UN uh, peacekeeping operation plus a lot of UK support, institution of the country there'd already been an uh, election to choose the legit legitimate president that's a very tiny country but that was much more successful i mean it's still a poor country but it's stable and it's um, changed government a number of times without trouble so i really think the international community isn't good at this and in the case of iraq of course there wasn't a un lead anyway um it was america just assuming that People would welcome them and everything would be simple and no preparations were made and the rush to war, there wasn't a crisis, yet the rush to war happened with no preparation. I mean, that was the most disastrous of all, I think. Yeah. Well, we've done the rush to war. Um, but th thank you for those those thoughts and also important to remind us of, of successes, even of smaller ones like um, the intervention in Sierra Leone. Patricia, just your thoughts looking at other live con conflicts like Ukraine and so on. Has this changed the way that uh, people look at security and the, the UN um, instruments of security? Yes, it has. Um, I would say, for one thing, um, if we look at the way information and intelligence has been transmitted um, over this recent war with more open source information, uh, more um, laying open uh, what the US and the UK knows, that's one huge chain change. Um, I would say as well that the um, UN now has new mechanisms and new capabilities. We have a way of uh, detecting the tiniest trace of nuclear material, which of course has put Iran into a terrible situation. We have new chemical weapons prohibitions, and we also have nuclear testing prohibitions. All of that is since that time. Thank you very much for that. We are going to have to draw to a close. Uh, we can do no more in this discussion than take uh, that, that brief step back to 20 years ago and the memories of what that was like, both on the decisions and what Iraq felt like at that time. And then take a leap forward to Iraq now and just some of the thoughts about what faces it now. We have, as Chatham House, done much, much more on this. The brilliant Iraq conference and the work around it um, that I was describing earlier, uh, much work on the region led 
by Lena and many of the accounts, uh, very detailed accounts by Haida and Renard of what is going on there and all the security work done by Patricia and her excellent team. So a big thank you to all my guests. Uh, Claire Short, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And from Chatham House, Patricia Lewis, Lena Katib, Renard Mansour and Haida Al-Shakari. Do follow them all on Twitter. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow and subscribe. And please do leave us a review. We do read them. To read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we would love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org. And you can find there all the work I was just talking about. The Middle East and North Africa program this week published a lot of work on this 20th year anniversary of that invasion. And Renard also has an essay in Foreign Affairs on the failure of Iraq's democracy post-2003. Next week, we're going to be discussing Sweden and Finland and their hopes of membership of NATO. Do stay tuned. That's goodbye from me, Roman Maddox. (laughs) 